This season of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by Franciscan Media, seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Franciscan Media publishes books by authors like Richard Rohr, Heather King, and Ronald Rollheiser. Get 25% off your first order in the store when you use the code FRANCISFX, that's Francis, the letter F and the letter X, at franciscanmedia.org. That's franciscanmedia.org. This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Hello and welcome to the Francis Effect Podcast. My name is David Dalt. I host a radio show called Things Not Seen about culture and faith, and I'm an assistant professor of Christian spirituality at the Institute of Pastoral Studies at Loyola University, Chicago. I'm here with my friends Heidi Schlumpf and Father Dan Haran. Heidi is senior correspondent at National Catholic Reporter, a publication that connects Catholics to church, faith, and the common good with independent news, analysis, and spiritual reflection. Father Dan is professor of philosophy, religious studies, and Theology, and Director of the Center for the Study of Spirituality at St. Mary's College in Notre Dame, Indiana. He is also Affiliated Professor of Spirituality at the Oblate School of Theology in San Antonio, Texas. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss news and events through a lens of our shared Catholic faith. Father Dan and Heidi, welcome to you both. Heidi, how have you been? I've been great, although I'm nursing two sick children home today, so hopefully I told them to be quiet in the background, and they're they're teenagers now, so they'll hopefully do that. So just some sort of sore throat bug going around, and I know with this crazy, unseasonably warm weather we're having here in Chicago, it's a lot of illnesses. So for people who don't know, it's technically February still, the end of February, and it was 70 degrees in February in Chicago yesterday. I know... Dan, you're experiencing that as well. Yeah. We had some company this past weekend, and it was my brother-in-law and podcast listener, Tom Butler. So I just want to say a shout out to him. And also just wanted to point some attention to an upcoming piece I have about an event I went to last week that was sponsored by the Lumen Christi Institute about criminal justice reform. And it was really powerful, and I've been working on it for the last couple of days, and it'll be at ncronline.org shortly. So that's what I've been up to. What about you, Dan? Oh, busy, busy. It's that time of the semester. We're about a week and a half away from our spring break, midterm break, which means lots of papers and assignments and the kind of bubbling, slow rise anxiety of the midterm, but also looking forward to a little breather after that. But we've got a bunch of exciting events here at the Center for the Study of Spirituality. So listeners, feel free to to sign up. Come visit our webpage on Tuesday, March 5th 
at five o'clock in the afternoon Eastern time. We have Dr. Brian Robinette from Boston College, who's going to talk about his book, The Difference Nothing Makes, Christ, Creation, and Contemplation. And then on Friday evening at seven o'clock Eastern time, we're having a webinar with the renowned psychiatrist, Dr. Judith Herman of Harvard University, whose recent book on trauma called Truth and Repair is a long-awaited sequel to her earlier work in the 90s, which was groundbreaking on trauma and those who are victim survivors of abuse. So we're really excited to, to host her in this live webinar. Everything's free and open to the public. Be sure to sign up. Yeah. So David, you're also, oh no, you're on sabbatical. I was going to say you, I was going to say you're in solidarity with that time of the semester, but you're absolutely not. What are you up to then? Well, I know that I'm on sabbatical and nominally that means that I have a lot of rest and free time, but actually, and I say this in solidarity with maybe some other listeners out there, I've actually been having to really look at my schedule and care for myself because I have over-programmed and I have been realizing that I'm skirting the edges of burnout right now because I've taken on, in addition to writing projects, I've taken on more audio projects and I'm helping, even though I'm not a part of the daily life of Institute of Pastoral Studies, I still am in close contact with my colleagues there. And we're thinking about strategic planning and we're thinking about processes of accreditation coming up. And I'm deeply involved in those conversations. And every once in a while, I look up and realize, wow, I, I have slept a lot, but I haven't really rested in a long time. And so I constantly have to think and reevaluate. And all of the projects I'm involved in are good projects. I'm glad that I said yes to them. But I'm also realizing that at 53 years old, I have limits. <laughs> and I'm a parent. And I have projects that I have to get done for my own professional development. And so... It's always a balancing act of wanting to do as much good in the world as you can with the talents you've been given, and sometimes I'm not good at doing that balance. So these have been a hard few weeks, and I've had to say no to some things that I've really wanted to say yes to, and again, I know that many listeners can relate to that, and so I just I hope that everybody figures out during Lent a way to find a little bit better balance and get some Sabbath time into their schedule. But that's what's going on with me. I mean, but everything around that is wonderful. Kids are great. Just having a blast. Not crazy about the fact that it's going to be 70 degrees in Chicago today, and then it's supposed to snow tonight and be in the 20s tomorrow. That feels a little weird. So the world around me is going to heck in a handbasket. But for the most part, if I can figure out a way to get some balance, I'm mostly okay. <laughs> So since I've been talking about Lenten balance, I'm curious, what are the two of you doing in terms of your Lenten practices? Well, and I think I shared this in the interview that's going to come later with Kathleen Dorsey Bello. I've been trying to carve out a little bit of time in the morning to do some spiritual reading before I jump right into the news, which is a challenge for a person who does news for a living. But so far, that's been really good for me. Just And it's just a matter of 20 minutes in the morning. So I'm hoping it's a practice that'll stick with me after Lent. We'll see. Yeah, how about you, Dan? What's your practice? Or have you? what are you doing for Lent? Yeah. So I wrote about this actually a little bit in my last column at NCR, where I lifted up the work of an Anglican priest and biblical scholar who wrote a little book in a series 
introducing the kind of liturgical seasons, the church year. And I appreciated his little book on Lent. It was a good way to start the season. And as I mentioned in my column, sometimes I feel like the seasons, Advent and Lent in particular, kind of sneak up on me. This year, it felt like it came way out of the blue, even though it's intellectually I'm aware of it happening. But because it's so early this year, it threw me off guard even more. I pointed out that it was only seven weeks from the end of, or from Christmas to the beginning of Lent, which is warp speed. So what I'm doing is not super disciplined as much as I think I would like it to be. And like you, Heidi, I've been focusing on spiritual reading and in particular going back to one of my favorite texts of Thomas Merton's New Seeds of Contemplation. And it's a text I know very well and have taught and have written about and have studied, but I'm approaching it really from a kind of slow reading, deep dive way. And it's been really wonderful to read it anew with a new set of eyes and experiences. So that's my simple kind of practice this year. David, what are you up to? Yeah, I think right now the Lenten practice is simply daily survival. I'm trying to work my recovery and my sobriety one day at a time, and that is as much on my Lenten plate as I can adequately accomplish right now, and I'm letting myself know that is enough. <laughs> so I think that's well said. Yeah. Just keeping keeping the wheels from falling off the bicycle is where I'm at with that <laughs> this Lent. And so, listeners, coming up on the show today, we've got three segments that I think you're going to find fascinating. In the first segment, we're going to be talking about the fallout that has affected, among other things, in vitro fertilization practices. We're also going to be talking in the second segment about the attacks by the Texas Attorney General against a ministry in El Paso, Texas, called Annunciation House. And then in our third segment, Heidi's going to be interviewing Kathleen Dorsey Bello. She's the program director for the Institute of Black Catholic Studies down in New Orleans. All of that is coming up on The Francis Effect. Please stay with us. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt, and I'm here with Dan Haran and Heidi Schlumpf. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. On February 20th, the Alabama State Supreme Court ruled that frozen embryos counted as minor children under the state's Wrongful Death of a Minor Act. The case arose in response to an incident in 2020 when an unauthorized person accessed a cryogenic freezer that stored frozen embryos and dropped a container of embryos on the floor, destroying them. Two couples, James and Emily LePage and Felicia and Scott Ason, filed a lawsuit against the Center for Reproductive Medicine. The lower courts ruled in favor of the Center for Reproductive Medicine, but the state Supreme Court decided to hear the case and issued its decision this month, sending shockwaves across the country. Those who belong to the radical wing of the anti-abortion movement that has been pushing for recognition of what they call, quote, fetal personhood, unquote, have celebrated this decision. According to Bloomberg News, this notion of personhood refers to, quote, the concept of granting legal rights to the unborn at conception or a couple of months after, unquote. However, the vast majority of people of both political parties, including pro-life conservatives, have criticized this decision. This includes national political figures like former Vice President Mike Pence, who in 2022 spoke about his own family's use of fertility treatments. 
Among the aspects of this case that are receiving a lot of attention is the concurring opinion written by Chief Justice Tom Parker, which explicitly invoked sectarian religious language and cited passages from the Bible, John Calvin, and Thomas Aquinas. His opinion included the following line, which has been widely discussed. Quote, in summary, the theologically based view of the sanctity of life adopted by the people of Alabama encompasses the following. One, God made every person in his image. Two, each person therefore has a value that far exceeds the ability of human beings to calculate. And three, human life cannot be wrongfully destroyed without incurring the wrath of a holy God who views the destruction of his image as an affront to himself, unquote. Dan, why don't you get the conversation started for us? There's a lot to unpack here politically, legally, and theologically. Where should we begin? Well, I want to begin just with stating what may be obvious to many of our listeners, which is within the Catholic community, within the Catholic Church, in vitro fertilization has been something not supported by the teachings of the church magisterial teachings around reproduction. And so the church's teaching on the prohibition of artificial contraception, this is a fertility treatment and therapy that actually a wide number of Catholic couples have engaged in despite the prohibition from the church's leadership from the magisterial teaching. So I just want to state that from the get-go because we are talking about things from our Catholic perspective, and I'm not especially interested in talking about that or unpacking that from a moral view, mostly because I'm not a moral theologian, I'm a systematician, and I'm more interested in the bigger picture here. And the thing that I want to start with actually has to do with the Chief Justice's concurring opinion. And what a number of commentators have been pointing out is really kind of a nod to Christian nationalism, that it, regardless of one's religious convictions, right? So as Catholics, we have this religious worldview, or regardless of one's sort of political worldview and perspective, there's something jarring about the explicit invocation of God language, the reference references to the Bible, to biblical texts in a legal court decision. This has been the thing that I think has shocked me the most. We can also talk about like the, the efforts to push the boundaries of what constitutes human personhood and persons meriting rights, legal rights within the U.S. context. But I think the place where I want to begin is just like what a startling statement that is to talk about God, to talk about the Imago Dei, to use these kinds of, you know, to talk about incurring the wrath of a holy God is really disturbing. Well, yes, that's been raised by a number of commentators. And while on the one hand, I don't disagree that we should bring our faith into the public square, and we'll be talking about that in the next segment when we talk about Annunciation House. On the other hand, it does seem that certain strains of Christianity and this judge has been associated with some very interesting slash bizarre strains of Christianity tend to always be focusing on the gender and sexuality is where they want to apply their Christian faith. So yes, it did cause some concerns for me too. And I know a lot of people, what's been interesting to me is the politics in the aftermath was how quickly otherwise people who are opposed to legal abortion have rallied to say, well, wait, I believe in, I'm, I support IVF. And I think there's a recognition there that not just among Catholics, but Americans more broadly, that this has become an accepted way, an accepted medical procedure and an accepted way for people to 
have biological children if they're unable to. So I appreciated you, Dan, pointing out the Catholic teaching about IVF. And just, you know, I'm not a moral theologian either, but there's a couple reasons that it is prohibited. And it one of them is the separation of the sex act from the procreative act in that it happens in a Petri dish. But the other one that I think pro-lifers cite more often is the destruction of embryos. And I'm not going to get into a debate with anyone about when life begins because I don't know for sure. But I do think that a number of people wonder if it begins at the eight cell level. And so, or people feel differently, I think, at when we're talking about something that's six to 10 cells, then, and this is why so much pro-life legislation focuses at how far along the woman is in her pregnancy. So these are all issues that, again, Catholic teaching maybe hasn't been very persuasive on, and we see politically some pushback on this. And maybe it's the Christian nationalism strains as well that people are concerned about. Well, I'm not a moral theologian either, but I am a legal scholar. And so I want to talk a little bit about the legal aspect of this. And this gets to be very fuzzy, and so I want to try and speak as clearly as I can. A lawmaker in the United States of America is completely at liberty to say, I voted for this particular piece of legislation because of my Christian beliefs, or I voted against this particular piece of legislation because of my Christian beliefs. The conscience that informs that particular level of decision-making in the legal process is completely acceptable because there is a moment where the lawmaker never suspends being a citizen of the United States. And citizens have the right to vote and act according to their consciences. That, there, that is a well-established and well-protected thing. Where the line begins to become brighter is when you then take that language of conscience and make it be part of the statutory form. When you begin to move it into the legal justification for or the premises incorporated into the writing of a law. And this is not just adult talking. This is this has been, I should say, well-established precedent in Supreme Court jurisprudence, where they have looked at the language that was used in the statutory process, the way of drafting the law, and if there has been an explicit sectarian religious justification for the law, that becomes a conflict with what we call the Establishment Clause and what has been called the separation of church and state. So you can vote your conscience, you can even be informed by your conscience as a lawmaker. What you can't do is say, and therefore my conscience gets to become part of the formal neutral law by which everyone is governed. So there's a real sort of sliding point here, and this has clearly crossed that line. But given the recent jurisprudence of the current Supreme Court, for whom precedent, the technical name for that is stare decisis, has no consequence, I have no idea if the current Supreme Court would look at that statutory language and, like previous iterations of the Supreme Court, say this is clearly a violation of fundamental constitutional principles. I have no idea how this is going to play out. We are literally in the Wild West here. 
Well, and it has real consequences, right? So the New York Times had a really interesting interview with a woman who she and her husband were planning. They'd had a number of difficulties in part because she had a kind of cancer that the treatment for really made it impossible for her to safely carry pregnancy to term. And so, again, this is a, a practice that even Pope Francis has called into question and has criticized, which is maternal surrogacy. But they were going to work with a surrogate and through in vitro fertilization to bring about this pregnancy. And all of this was set to go with costing hundreds of thousands of dollars, and which is another issue, right? In the state of Alabama, when all of this happened and medical care facilities put the kibosh on any kind of IVF-related treatment for fear of liability, for fear of, you know, getting caught in the midst of this. But David, you brought up something that I've been thinking a lot about, which is how actually would the U.S. Supreme Court respond to this if they were to hear the case? And on face value, I would say I can't imagine upholding this Alabama state Supreme Court decision. Yet on the other hand, there is this sort of, as you put it, Wild West aspect to this with justices like Sam Alito and Amy Coney Barrett, who are very clearly have strong feelings around anything that relates in any kind of way to something that might be perceived as abortion or when it comes to reproductive rights or access. So I don't know. Are there any intuitions? Heidi, do you have thoughts about this? Have you been thinking about this too? Well, it just makes me realize how the predictions were made in the aftermath of the Dobbs decision that overturned Roe versus Wade, the national protection of abortion rights, that this would all go to the states now and that we would see somehow more reasonable, moderate laws emerging in, from the states because it was being done at, at the, a more local level. And that's not what we've seen at all. In fact, we've seen extremes on both sides, right? So in bluer states, the one I live in, which is blue primarily because of the city of Chicago, the rest of the state is not that blue. Laws are extreme on one side in terms of protecting abortion rights pretty much in, in an extreme way. And then in other states, you're seeing extremes on the other side. And what has happened is that especially those who are predicting that for women, and a man is involved in vitro usually as well, that this is having everyday consequences to their lives now. And I think that even people who might be judgmental about abortion probably know someone who created their family through in vitro. And again, because that involves the bringing about of life in addition to sometimes the possible destruction of embryos. I think that the public pushback on this is going to be pretty fierce. And already we see the Democrats using this or planning to use this in the presidential election, which is why you saw Trump so quickly say, oh, I'm all for IVF. So yeah, I'm afraid. I was not one of those people who thought things were going to get more reasonable after Dobbs. So I'm trying to refrain from saying I told you so, but it's concerning and it depends what state you live in. Well, and I want to invoke our friend of the show, Steve Millies. He and I don't always agree on policy positions, but in this case, I really do follow his lead, and that is Catholics need to be very modest in terms of what they wish to see in terms of Catholic teaching becoming part of the statutory regime that we live in. It is not our role in the world, and he's got readings of papal encyclicals and other documents to back this up. It's not our role in the world to impose Catholicism on the world using the civic process. 
We are to evangelize through the gospel of Jesus Christ and through the loving work of mercy that compels us to do. We are not to force our position on others. That's not what we're here for. It's not that century, friends. And so we need to be very, very careful because we can very quickly look at those temptations that Jesus was given by the devil there in the Gospels, and we can say, well, he made the wrong choices. He should have grabbed political power and ruled the world from his perch, but that's not what he chose to do. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point there, David. I think there are two other thoughts that I have too, maybe as we continue thinking about this, because we're not going to, this isn't going to be the last of this conversation, I have no doubt. One is, again, it does point to the theological foundations for our moral teaching. All three of us acknowledge we're not moral theologians. We don't really want to unpack some of that right now. But what's at the core of the magisterial teaching on sexual ethics is actually a at best 13th century and kind of neo-Thomist understanding of human personhood, sexuality, reproduction, which is really completely untrue when compared with what we've learned through scientific discovery over the last several centuries. So I think there's a, an open question, a general question without getting into specifics that asks, what is it that we need to update ourselves on and then understand, as St. Anselm of Canterbury in the 11th century said, seek greater understanding of what it is we say we believe, right? So I think too often there's this kind of repetition of the way things have been received and we're not going to engage this any further. And so things like reproduction, for instance, the lack of any understanding of the ovum, for example, in the 13th century understanding of reproduction means, you know, it leads to all sorts of things and all sorts of problems. So I'll just leave that out there as something that needs further examination. And it should be noted, too, that actually that the Synod document in October pointed out that the conversations about theological anthropology need to continue happening. So that's really important. The second thing, too, that seems intuitively problematic is that unlike abortion, unlike contraception, unlike some of these other issues around reproductive rights and justice and access and so forth that get lumped together, IVF therapy is actually about bringing about life. It's people who want to have children. And so there seems to be, at least on a very superficial level, at least initially, a contradiction in terms and in values. And so I understand the hand-wringing around the destruction of embryos in, as you said, Heidi, like in, in a very early stage of cellular development. But on the other hand, IVF therapy has been the means by which hundreds of thousands of children have been born in this country. And so that's something to consider. So I think that there's a lot to weigh there. There's a lot to unpack, but this is a deeply consequential decision. And that issue of Christian nationalism is not going away anytime soon either. Well, listeners, we know that you have strong opinions about this. We do as well. This will not be the last time that we will be visiting this topic. So please do stay informed and stay with us on this. You're listening to The Francis Effect. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Horan, and I'm here with Heidi Schlumpf and David Dalt. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss news and events from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. Annunciation House is a vital ministry that has been supporting the migrant populations in El Paso, Texas, for close to half a century. 
According to the Texas Tribune, their ministry includes, quote, several shelters in El Paso, helping immigrants and refugees who are experiencing homelessness with various needs, including food and housing, and providing information on how to complete legal documents to claim asylum in the United States, unquote. Now, however, Annunciation House is under threat. In early February 2024, Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton sent attorneys to the ministry and demanded they produce various records about the persons being served, including personal information and medical records. Again, the Texas Tribune reports that, quote, Attorney General Paxton's lawyers gave shelter workers a day to turn over the documents, and when Annunciation House asked for a 30-day extension, the Attorney General's office refused, saying that if the staff didn't turn over the documents by the deadline, the shelters would be shut down, unquote. Attorney General Paxton has gone on record with public statements accusing Annunciation House of involvement in a number of illegal activities, including operating stash houses and smuggling people across the Texas-Mexico border. Various community organizations, local judges, and even the mayor's office have all rallied to the side of Annunciation House. El Paso Mayor Oscar Leeser went on to say that, quote, we continue to have people that need a shelter, need a warm meal, need clothing, and the city will not turn its back on anybody, unquote. David, you've made trip to border towns like McAllen and El Paso and have met with Catholics working in ministries like Annunciation House. What should we be thinking about with this threat coming from the Texas Attorney General? Yeah, the most recent trip that I made was with my friend Lisa Sharon Harper, and we went to McAllen, Texas, and met with a couple of different migrant ministries there at the border, and also with Sister Pimentel from Catholic Charities. And my experience of those ministries are they run on very frugal budgets. The one ministry I recall was a building that was, it had one sort of part of the building and then it had been added onto and added onto. So it was this maze of halls and corridors and rooms. As they got more funds, they were able to increase staff and they were able to increase their footprint. But that's the kind of ministry that we're talking about here, where they literally are taking as much of their revenues as they can and putting it back into the infrastructure of supporting and helping migrants who are in crisis. And so the attack, I'm going to use that word, of the attorney general on these and the draconian way in which it was carried out. So, okay, we're sending lawyers here and you must turn over these documents. Well, can we take a moment and and make sure that these are appropriate documents for us to be turning over to you? Can we have a little bit of time to discuss this? And the response was, no, absolutely not. If you don't do it today, we're going to consider you to be in violation and we're going to revoke your licensing and shut you down. I think There's a real sense here in which, in the last segment, we looked at legislation that was literally incorporating a kind of convenient religious language into the statutory framing. But here, we're seeing people who are literally living out their religious conviction to support the least of these among us, and they are being told that religious conviction actually makes you suspect, and we will attack you for it. So... I am in solidarity with Sister Pimentel, with other border ministries, and with Annunciation House, and I am here wanting very much to raise awareness of the fact that religious convictions, the work of conscience, is under attack on the borders of Texas. Yeah, and I think just that it's important to point out that these accusations of being involved in trafficking in some sort of way, these have been made before and they're unfounded and they've never been proved that these border ministries, especially the ones run by 
Catholic organizations are involved in this. So that's an unfair accusation and just the window dressing for the attack on the ministry. And I think I read a little bit about the history of Annunciation House, and it was interesting to me how the idea and the encouragement for the founder to create this ministry came from St. Mother Teresa. So it has some good bona fides in terms of who inspired this ministry. What I've been encouraged about is that so many Catholic organizations and individuals have been defending Annunciation House, especially Bishop Mark Seitz, who I think many people, many of our listeners may know. He's from Texas and has done some speaking about it, released a statement he saying, we will not be intimidated and throwing his support 100% behind Annunciation House. I know also Pax Christi and Catholic Charities and a number of other Catholic organizations have joined in that support. So that's been encouraging. What about you, Dan? What are you thinking? Well, I, yeah, I, that is encouraging. And I did see Bishop Seitz's statement, which I really appreciated. I was glad to see that. He, he really has been a great pastoral leader in Texas and throughout the country by bearing witness to the needs, first, of course, the needs of the people that he is entrusted with pastoral care for. So we think of the migrant communities, of course, but we also think about the way he responded so so movingly to the shooting in the Walmart there in El Paso some years back. So shout out to, to Bishop Mark Seitz. I'm with David, your point about essentially Jesus's call for us in, in Matthew 25 to do exactly the kinds of things that the community at Annunciation House and other like communities are doing. I was reminded in hearing about this story and in our conversation so far of the case of, of a human rights activist named Scott Warren, who was arrested in Arizona for leaving water out for migrants in the desert as an act of human, humanitarian aid. He was arrested because there were these draconian laws that said you, you can't, quote unquote, aid and abet those who are coming over the border, quote unquote, illegally. And so he's not the only one who's doing this good work, but it's another kind of example of these border states and particular administrations like Attorney General Paxton, who are criminalizing caring for the least among us, right? Caring for those most in need. It strikes me as well that the whole of the collection of the oracles of the Hebrew prophets called for exactly this in ancient Israel, which is like part of the covenant is you need to care for the stranger, the alien, the widow, the orphan, right? Those who are most in need. And that's exactly what's going on here. I didn't know that connection to to Mother Teresa as the inspiration, Heidi, that you shared. But again, this is the same sort of thing. When she began her ministry, she was looked at askance in India. And we see this playing out today. So to me, it seems like a no-brainer. I don't understand... I just don't understand the the inherent contradiction because states like Texas or even Arizona, most of those who are citizens or residents there identify as Christian of some kind, right? Including a, a lot of Catholics. And how do you hold the teaching of the Gospels with this sort of attitude? It's just perplexing to me. Well, I'm mindful of Leviticus 19, and I know that oftentimes Leviticus 18 and 19 and 20 get trotted out as sort of clobber verses for the kind of sexual matters that we've been talking about earlier in this episode, but I just want to draw listeners' attention to the latter part of Leviticus 19. 
when an alien resides with you in your land, do not mistreat such a one. You shall treat the alien who resides with you no differently than the natives born among you. You shall love the alien as yourself, for you too were once aliens in the land of Egypt. I, the Lord, am your God. And it goes so far as to say in Leviticus 19 that those who grow crops are forbidden by God to reap to the very edge of their fields because you have to leave something, what's called the gleanings on the edge, for those who are traveling, those who don't have resources, that doesn't belong to you. And so someone like Attorney General Paxton, who wants to say, no, we have hard borders and we will literally glean Texas to the edge of our borders, is violating God's command (laughs) in Leviticus 19. And we who are faithful Catholics need to speak up about that and say that, and we need to support those who are using Matthew 25 and Leviticus 19 and other scriptures to motivate their ministries there on the Texas border. There's an interesting sort of juxtaposition between the two stories we've been talking about. David, you were focusing on the sort of religious infiltration of the sort of statutory system in the U.S. through the court system in Alabama. Here we actually, I think, could argue it's the opposite, right? There is a kind of ironically secularization or a kind of individualism that's informing a type of Christian worldview. I'm reminded of an essay from around 2004, 2005 by the the, the renowned ethicist Stanley Hauerwas. Well, we could say he is actually a moral theologian, unlike the three of us in our previous segment. But he wrote a, a very powerful essay in the wake of the Iraq invasion by the United States in 2003. And he called, the title of the essay is called America's God. And he was really calling to task mainline Protestants, Catholics, and others who kind of predominate the U.S., evangelicals as well. Who is the God that we worship and what God informs our own understanding of what it means to be Christian, right? And I'm not doing justice to the point he was making, except to say that I think the God that people who are putting razor wire in the river, the border in Texas, or who are going after and trying to shut down ministries like Annunciation House, to me, they must believe in a God that is really what in the Christian and Jewish traditions, we would identify as an as an idol, as a as a replacement for the God of Jesus Christ, the God of love, the God of the covenant, the God who calls us to this compassionate way of being. So I think that another part that we should consider is our broken political system here in this country that has made it virtually impossible for there to be any sort of immigration reform or policies. And I think that feeds this extremism where people's views about immigration are informed by their political beliefs rather than their faith too often. So I think, you know, it. I've seen some more Republican-leaning Catholics point out that the church does teach that a country has a right to secure its borders. And I don't think Annunciation House is calling for anything different no. than that. But the problem, you know, what does secure our borders mean? Do people have the right to apply for asylum, especially people who are fleeing countries for fear of their lives? But the problem is that every time our government tries to make any sort of compromises around this issue, we have a certain segment, and it's on the right, that refuses to even agree to a proposal that even most Catholics and progressive Democrats aren't in favor of, but at least move something forward. This broken way we have of doing politics is not helping on this issue, and I'm afraid it's going to be something that's going to 
feed the frenzy in the political in the in the presidential election to come. Well, listeners, we don't often ask you to take action as a result of one of our segments, but I'm going to break that rule this time, and I'm going to ask, would you please pray for Annunciation House? And if you feel so moved, would you financially contribute or find other ways to contribute to the ministries on the border, Catholic Charities of the Rio Grande Valley or Annunciation House or other work that is being done to care for the least of these. And as Heidi notes, please get involved in the political process because your voice helps to shape how leaders like Ken Paxton get to throw around their power and even whether or not they get access to the kind of violence that they're trying to use here. So we're going to leave this segment for now, but rest assured we will talk about this issue again. Coming up in our next segment, Heidi is going to be interviewing Kathleen Dorsey-Bello. Please stick around for that. You're listening to The Francis Effect. Francis Effect. I'm Heidi Schlumpf with today's guest, Dr. Kathleen Dorsey-Bello. Dr. Dorsey-Bello is director of the Institute for Black Catholic Studies at Xavier University in New Orleans, where she also is professor of theology and specializes in Black Catholic ministry. Xavier is the country's only Catholic HBCU, Historical Black College and University. The Institute for Black Catholic Studies, which was founded in 1980, trains lay people and clergy for Catholic ministry within U.S. Black Catholic communities, and it offers a master's degree as well as continuing education through its summer programs. Dr. Dorsey Bello became the Institute's director in 2019. After a career in ministry and in education, she has previously served as a principal of a Catholic school. A native of Baltimore, she has advanced theological degrees from Xavier University and from Catholic Theological Union in Chicago. She also has an MBA. (laughs) Much of her writing is in the areas of worship, evangelization, and faith formation. As Black History Month comes to a close, we invited Dr. Dorsey Bellow to the Francis Effect to talk about a number of issues that are of importance to Black Catholics and of importance to the whole church. So welcome to the podcast, Kathleen. I'm so grateful that you were willing to join us. Good morning. Thank you, Heidi. Glad to be here. I wanted to start by talking about the idea of some African-American saints, and maybe that could be a source of Lenten wisdom for listeners as well. But I've been following this group of Catholics from Baltimore who are kind of advocating for the six Black Catholics who are on the road to official sainthood in the Catholic Church. And I remember that they took a trip to the Vatican in October during the Synod to make the case to the Vatican officials for moving this process along. And so if people aren't aware, there are currently no African-American saints from the United States. So not yet, (laughs) but we have six on the path. Could you tell me a little bit about some of those folks and what the process has been like? Sure. Well, there there are six, and um, oldest is Pierre Toussaint. He was an enslaved gentleman born in Haiti, and during the Haiti 
revolution. He and the, and the family who owned him, in quotes, came to New York. And in New York, he and the wife of the gentleman in the family found themselves in New York alone. They lost almost everything in Haiti. And so they were in New York. The father had died. The husband had died. And so Pierre Toussaint spent his life taking care of the person who was taking care care of him. He, in the process, he was a beautician. And so he used his talents to raise money for the family. He raised his own family. He bought his family out of enslavement. And Catholic charities developed out of the work that that he did. And he, he was... He's in the 1800s, and so his cause, he's venerable, and his cause is the oldest of all the causes. Our mother, Mary Long, is the foundress of the Abile Sisters of Providence, the first African-American congregation of religious women. She, too, has Cuban and Haitian background, and she came to the United States and ended up in Baltimore and founded the Ablé Sisters of Providence. They're very devoted to African-American children in the 1800s. It was against the law for Black children to learn, to go to school, to read. But the sisters knew that spiritually and physically and mentally, that's what Black children needed. And so they established schools. My mother and father were taught by the Ablé Sisters of Providence. I was taught by the Ablay Sisters of Providence, my brothers and sisters as well. And they have established the oldest running African-American Catholic high school in the country, which my mother graduated from there. And then her grandson graduated from there. So the Ablay Sisters of Providence and Mother Mary Lange are very important in the history of Black Catholics in the United States. As Father Cyprian Davis says, the women, African-American women, were the sisters on the job long before the Black Catholic priests were. And so after sister, after Mother Mary Lange, was Mother Henriette DeLille here in New Orleans. And she grew up in a well-to-do kind of family for a Black family. And she used all of her gifts. She used the wealth of her family to take care of orphans, to care for the sick, Black folks, as well as folks of other cultures. Again, in the 1800s, she established the Sisters of the Holy Family, who are still in existence and still teaching and still have a nursing home. They are very active here in New Orleans. She, too, is venerable. And then Augustus Tolton, many people probably know Father Augustus Tolton's story. Who was it? He was enslaved in Missouri, and his father died. His mother took him and his sister and escaped to Illinois. The people in Illinois recognized his intelligence and thought that he would be a wonderful priest. No one in the United States would take him in seminary. And so he ended up going to Rome for his seminary education. And he thought 
that upon ordination that he would be sent to Africa because there were no Black priests in the 1800s in the United States. But he ended up being sent back to Quincy, Illinois, and he was a wonderful pastor there. But he had some fallings out with his brother priest because there not only were Black folks eager to celebrate Mass with Father Tolton, but some of the whites also found his style, his musical style, his preaching style, his pastoral style so wonderful that they would come to the church. And so Father had to leave Quincy and go to Chicago, where he worked to establish a church there. And he died at a very young age. But he, his perseverance, his belief in himself and his love for the community really make him stand out among the six. And then Julia Greeley was a laywoman born in Denver. She too was enslaved. And she just, she was poor. She took everything that she had. And she went through the city at night taking care of anybody she saw that needed help. And so she is still a servant of God. That's the first stage is the servant of God. She and Sister Thea Bowman are servants of God. Sister Thea Bowman is also very well known because Sister Thea Bowman is a candidate for sainthood who lived in the 1900s. She died in 1990, and she is an especial, she's a, a a special ancestor was here at the Institute because she was, she was one of the first teachers of the Institute. And she had such a charismatic presence that as she, she went around the country doing revivals and presentations on Black culture, she had a beautiful singing voice. She was interviewed on national TV. And so when people heard that she was at the Institute, they wanted to come and they wanted to take classes with Sister. And I love Sister as a saint, a, a potential saint, because I knew her. And we always think of saints as these little statuettes that are very holy and, you know, not very worldly at all. But that was not Sister Thea. It's so wonderful to see the church recognizing that saints are Elders, saints are ancestors, and even though they have crossed over, they can still be very present in our lives, and their lives are role models for us. And so I'm happy to have these six as role models because I imagine that they all were very real people, had their challenges, had their fights with authority, almost all of them had to stand up for themselves and their community. And that's not a sign that we often see in saints in the Catholic Church. So the group in Baltimore, kind of, kind of radical kind of group, because each one of these candidates has a guild, and the guild is the group who promotes the cause so that the people in the community know who they are, that they pray and ask for their intercession, their histories are studied, their, everything about them is very researched to make sure that indeed their lives were all models for us to follow. But the saints, the groups, the saints, 
the small s saints at St. Anne have a Catholic social teaching kind of approach. And they believe that the process of canonization does not fit the service of African-Americans in the Catholic Church, that the process is very lengthy, the process is very expensive. And so they are trying to go directly to the Pope and to ask him, based on the experience of Black Catholics and Black people in general in the United States, that their causes be expedited. All of the, the six, the first six, they lived in the 1800s. And so the St. Anne, Anne group is asking people to fill out, to sign a petition. They're collecting the petition. As you said, they took a set of petitions directly to Rome to be presented to Pope Francis to make their request that our six move along in the process. Some of the people in the guild are not too thrilled with them because they're a little out of order. But I personally, I, I like to see people in the pew recognize something that they think is not right and take an action that may in the end have an effect. We don't know what the Holy Spirit will do. But I salute them for the work that they are doing Besides the petitions, they are doing a lot of catechesis about mm. who the six are, what they did, how they lived as persons who were Catholic and persons who are Black. They all are great stories for us who are trying to live that out today. Well, speaking of the U.S. bishops, <laughs> at their most recent meeting this past November, yeah. they voted to continue what was an ad hoc committee, meaning that it's not a permanent committee for the bishops, the Committee Against Racism, for another two years. And they also made an exception to the rules so that a retired bishop, retired auxiliary bishop Joseph Perry of Chicago, could continue to serve as the chair of that committee. Yeah. So what are your thoughts about the work of that committee, what they've done so far, what they hope to do? Yeah, so I, I think it's, you know, it was found, the committee came to be in the aftermath of the George Floyd stuff. I know some, there's been some criticism that maybe it hasn't been prophetic enough, or what are your thoughts? Well, let me start at a different place. I think the criticism starts with the Catholic Church itself and in the men that they select to be bishops. There is no question that there is racism in our church, that there is anti-Blackness in the Catholic Church, and there is white supremacy in the church. And so the men who are selected from African-American community to serve are those who, who are considered to be who are great pastors, very great pastors, but those who are not likely to rock the boat in very outrageous ways. And Black Catholics love our bishop. As Sister, Sister Thea says in her talk before the bishop, we love our bishops. They come from us. They are related to us. We love them. But at the same time, when you're invited into a group where you are a minority and a big minority, in order to be effective, 
You've got to work within the structures. Mm-hmm. If you want to be invited, then you've got to you've got to think like people think and talk like people talk. Even if that's not what your heart is telling you, and even if that's not what your people are asking you to bring back as a message. Mm-hmm. Our black bishops are heroic men from the first to our, our latest appointed bishops. For me, I think the hardest vocation in the Catholic Church is that of black priests because we in the pew make great demands on them. We want them to be with us. We want them to come preach to us. We want them to come visit us. We want them to produce documents that reflect our experience. We want them to do revivals. And when this Martin Luther King Day, we want them to come and do Martin Luther King talks. There's so very few of them. There's so very few of them. And a lot of times that the demands of the people and the demands of the institutional church put them in a very difficult position, trying to please this side, trying to please this side at least work within the structures of the church. And the stress is horrible for our men, which does not mean that they are not effective. But many in the church at large want a voice that is clearly African-American, that speaks to our needs, that speaks to our situation, that speaks to our hopes and dreams of being part of the church. Yeah, and just for people who don't know, the number of Black Catholic bishops is very small with the death of Bishop Sherry this past year. So now there's six Black bishops, including retired, and that's 1% representation when Black Catholics are 6 or 7% of the church. So yeah. So very disproportionate to the number yeah. of Black Catholics in the church. And they really skipped over a whole generation of Black priests. You know, in 2016, mm-hmm. I had an audience with Bishop Cherie to ask, you know, what as a lay person, what is, lay pe- what is it as lay people that we can do to promote more Black bishops in the church? You know, and, and he told us very frankly, that bishops make bishops and that most of the Black bishops don't know the Black priests. And so it's part, it's part of the church's strategy with people on the margins to divide and conquer. And so, you know, the bishops work in their sphere. The priests are at the pastoral level. And because they all are working so hard, because there's so few of them, they hardly ever have the opportunity to meet and to talk with one another. And so, you know, he told us, he said, if you know someone, if you know a Black priest who you think would make a great bishop, let me know and ask them to send me their resume. And I know there are at least two of us as Black bishops who will promote the cause. Most of the men whose formation happened after Vatican Council II are more outspoken. They are more formally 
trained in terms of theology. Many of them are more Afrocentric in the way that they present faith as they represent the faith. They're faithful because the faith doesn't change. It's just the way that they present the faith is different, which is intimidating to a church, a USCCB, that is predominantly white and that holds power very tightly. One of the actions that we're seeing a lot of, unfortunately, is the closing of parishes in Black communities. So there just was a news report earlier this month that the Joliet Diocese in Illinois announced its series of parish closings, including the diocese's only Black parish, Sacred Heart. And of course, these mergers and closings are going on in many dioceses and archdioceses across the country. I know there was some talk about here in Chicago, where I live, that the Renew My Church project disproportionately affected Black parishes, and it was cited in part because of low attendance. So what is what are your thoughts about how this affects Black Catholics? Is this fair? Is it racism? What are you thinking about the way parishes are being affected? It's really, it's heartbreaking, Heidi. I'm from Baltimore. Baltimore is going through the same struggle. New Orleans, the same struggle. Chicago. These are centers of Black Catholicism that are really going through the struggle of combining churches, closing churches, and along with it, and even as horrible, is the closing of Black Catholic schools. So, you know, when we look at, well, you know, what's the cause? What is the cause? Part of it is generational. You know, religion is not that important to young people, it seems. Especially when you say one thing, but you do something else. And our Catholic Church is oftentimes more Catholic than it is Christian. They emphasize the Catholic and a Eurocentric, a Eurocentric version of Catholicism in which money is very important, numbers are very important, and things very important. And so, you know, when we look at many Black churches in in urban centers were churches that were handed down to us. When white flight left, when white flight happened in neighborhoods, then the Black community inherited old buildings from the beginning of the 19th, of the 18th century. Very difficult to maintain not ADA certified, so people have to put elevators in, they got to put air conditioning in. Some of the buildings just are not sustainable. And so that comes from a neglect on the part of the church that is related to how we use our funds, how we help people plan, how we use resources such as consultants and financial planners those resources are available to predominantly white folks who have flown to the suburbs and have beautiful modern buildings. And yet they too are struggling in terms of attendance at Mass. We call to be a missionary church. We have a lot of work 
to do. And some people think, you know, we need more priests. Well, yeah, we can always use more priests, but I don't see that happening. And so to me, it means that the people in the pew have got to make the difference. Young people have got to spend time not only working on their careers, also on their spiritual lives, on pastoral life of their communities, of their family, church homes, to learn how the church works, to get formation to, for, so that you can bring gifts to the church. If you don't know how the church functions, you can complain about how bad the liturgy all day long. But how about if we go someplace where we can learn the basics of liturgy so we can come back and be part of a liturgy commission? We can learn, take our financial knowledge and bring that to the parish and work within the community to bring the skills and the talents that it takes to make a thriving Black parish. Well, and this is where we put the plug in for the Institute and all the oh, yeah. formation and training that you guys do. And we will for sure include a link to the Institute for Black Catholic Studies as well. We appreciate that. The church as a whole is going through this process of synodality, this years-long process where we're becoming more of a listening church. Can you just talk a little bit about how you see participation among Black Catholics in the U.S. in synodality? What are they saying? Are they being heard as part of this process? Again, go back to the leadership. And I dare say many dioceses did not do the work of synodality. I know that synodality, the call to synodality, preparation for synodality, invitation to participate in synodality did not happen in many Black parishes. So the Black voice just it is not part of the incomplete picture that went to Rome. And again, you know, when we talk about the institutional church in the United States it has been a hard hit institution, you know, from the Pope in the 19th century saying that's the end of the slave trade, no more slave trade. And the U.S. bishop said, oh, no, <laughs> we're not doing that. We're not doing that to the way that they attend to the role of the laity, you know, the appreciation for Vatican Council II and what Vatican Council II calls us to be full, conscious, and active participants in the life of the church. Many of our bishops and many of the priests follow. You want to do well in your diocese as a priest, then you're going to follow what your bishop lays out for you, or you're going to have a hard time. You might be able to sleep at night if you do what you think is best for the people, but it won't be an easy life for you. And so I think where it happened, synodality was wonderful because it gives us a way of, a different way of being in community, of be quiet, listen, really listen to what someone else is saying. And then when it's your time, then you present 
But the listening part of it is something that our church doesn't do well. It doesn't prepare us to listen, listen well. So I'm hoping that the process of synodality is one that continues to be, to be developed, that this was not just a one and done process. Because I think African-American Catholics who put up with a lot for our faiths, who are stubborn, who I'm not going anyplace else. I'm here. This is my church. I believe what the church teaches. I try to practice what the church calls me to do as a Christian disciple. I'm not going anywhere. I'm not going anywhere. But at the same time, we look at how we're bleeding the faithful. We're bleeding the faithful. And so, again, you know, for me, the hope for me is the Institute. I'm grateful to be in a place where it's, it's just three weeks. That's all we can do for three weeks because most people cannot afford to be away from their home, their job, their responsibilities for more than three weeks. But three weeks, we come together as a church for that lifelong learning that it takes to keep the faith fresh and active in our personal lives and in our communal communal lives. And so priests, I love that the priests come to the Institute because they get to put take off their pastor hat for at least a week and go and sit in a classroom with lay people and deacons and elders and young people and learn about the faith. Relax and learn for a while. I'm so grateful that we're, we're having seminarians that are coming to do work on the master's in theology side and where, they're, where they can take what they're learning in predominantly white seminaries and put that in conversation with lay people who are African-American and Put the, have those conversations across cultures, you know, across generations, so that when people leave, you know, I think they leave with a little more hope. We can do this thing that that we can, as a Catholic community, that Black Catholics can take the gifts that God has given us that are reviled in a Eurocentric Catholic Church and use those to build the church up for not only Black Catholics, but for the whole, the church at large. I think that's what we're, we're called to do, but we have to do the work so we can present ourselves worthy to be listened to, worthy to serve, to minister, worthy to teach, because diversity is the gift that God gave to humanity, and the church is struggling a little bit in that area. Well, I think we're going to end on that note of hope about the Institute for Black Catholic Studies. And thank you so much, Dr. Kathleen Dorsey-Bellow, for being with us today and discussing these sometimes challenging but ultimately important and hopeful issues. So grateful. Thank you, Heidi, for your work. Thank you for the invitation and happy Lent. Thank you.
If you want to listen to the entirety of this interview with Heidi, you can do so at our Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash francisfxpod. Thank you for listening. On behalf of Heidi and Father Daniel, we'll be back in a couple of weeks. We're very glad to have been with you today. Thank you so much. This has been The Francis Effect. The Francis Effect is produced by Sandberg Media LLC and is recorded remotely in Chicago, Illinois and South Bend, Indiana. It's edited by me at the William Adams Studios in Hyde Park on Chicago's beautiful South Side. The opinions of this program are our own and do not reflect the positions of any organizations with which we may be affiliated. We want to give a shout out to the Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They are not affiliated with our program, but they did give us their kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we appreciate it very much. Please check out their good work at slmedia.org. This show is made possible in part by our Patreon supporters, and if you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod. We appreciate it very much. Please follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Both of those are at francisfxpod, and our website is also francisfxpod.com. Please tell your friends about the show, and if you're here for the first time, we have seasons and seasons of episodes that you can go back to and listen to for your heart's content. We're so glad that you're here. Heidi and Father Daniel and I will be back in about two weeks. We're looking forward to being with you then. Thank you again for listening.